Welcome to Modern Figures Podcast, a show where we're elevating the voices of Black women in computing to inspire the next generation of the advanced technology workforce. We're your hosts, Dr. Jeremy Waysom and Dr. Kyla McMullen. This podcast is sponsored by the National Center for Women in Information Technology, or NCWIT. NCWIT is a nonprofit organization that convenes, equips, and unites change leader organizations to increase participation of all women in the field of computing. Kyla and I are representatives of the Institute for African American Mentoring and Computing Sciences, or IMCS, which serves as a national resource for Black and African American students, faculty, and industry professionals in computing. Special thanks goes to our listeners who contribute to the podcast by supporting our online store, which you can find at our website, www.modernfigurespodcast.com. So today in the studio, we have Dr. Lauren Thomas Quigley. Yay! Yay! Hey, Lauren! <laughs> so Lauren is one of my favorite people on the earth. Aww. Aww. Um, We met forever ago through Nesby, but for y'all who don't know her... She got a bachelor's degree from Spelman in physics, then went to Norfolk State and got a master's in optical engineering, and then went on to Virginia Tech and got a PhD in engineering education. And Lauren is pretty well known at this point for a lot of things. Uh, you can find her on LinkedIn and see all of the stuff that she's doing with her life. Okay. She is very stalkable. <laughs> Team doing too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, STEM education is her her primary focus, and she's now working in corporate America, where she's taken her talents to helping organizations develop curriculum to educate their employees so they don't have to go outside of the confines of industry so they don't come in knowing stuff. Nah, bro. You got to learn every day. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, she's she's here with us today to talk about her experiences. Um, you may have noticed I didn't say her background is in computer science or computing <laughs> or any of those things. But y'all find out real soon why she's here <laughs> and, and why that's important. Okay. So, Lauren. <laughs> hey. Hey, girl. I'm excited to be here. We're happy that you came all the way from Seattle, Washington. Right. Whoop, whoop. On a red eye. On a red eye. Took a nap and then got up <laughs> to be here with us. <laughs> that means she loves us. I yes. do. I do. Yes. And, and I love this show. It's so Aww. exciting. I love it. I listen to every episode. Aw, thank you. So I'm so happy. <laughs> okay. So, um,. How did you get involved in engineering? Because that's really kind of, I guess, STEM, right? How how did that begin for you? Okay, so um, I was oddly homeschooled. I don't want to say oddly because more people are doing it now. But um, I was homeschooled from third grade until 10th grade. And this gave me a lot of flexibility um, to focus my time in my schoolwork and the things that I was really, really interested in. And uh, for me, that was always science. Like my mom really, I think, instilled in me and my sisters a really strong, you know, interest in understanding the world around us. And, you know, I just loved science. So um, I had spent most of, more of my time, you know, when I could pick my curriculum on math and science stuff because I just thought it was cool and interesting. And I was learning something new. Um, and I like the idea of creating something new or finding new knowledge. And um, 
when I was in high school, I um, I thought I was going to be a chemistry major, hmm. and then I took AP chemistry, and that changed. Oh my gosh. <laughs> It's a humbling experience. I got real humble. I, I have a similar experience with chemistry. Yeah, it, I like. I was kind of um, disappointed because I thought I was, you know, I was like ready to be this chemist, even though I had no idea what I was gonna do with it. And um, I struggled a lot. Like, you know, I put in a lot of energy and effort, but like, you know, I was getting it, but I didn't want to do it. Yeah. I feel you. With <laughs> chemistry, I'm like, okay, did it take all this to get here? I don't need it. I, yeah, I would like sweat during like chemistry <laughs> labs. Like I would like literally start sweating because I was like so nervous about what I was doing. Um, <laughs> so uh, my my AP chemistry teacher though, he was like, you should think about engineering. And I had actually never really thought about it. Um, my dad did technical work. So there were always like these computer things around my house. Like nope. literally when I was a kid, there was like PCBs around the house. Oh, wow. And, like, you know, I would be like, I'm going to make a robot with this. Wow. I didn't know what I was doing. See, I needed to go to homeschool. Why didn't my parents sign me up? They need to be You didn't need homeschool to have random computer parts everywhere in your house. Yeah. Because that's what my my house looked exactly like that. (laughs) I mean, like, there's still, like, old school diskettes at my parents' house. Like, We we just found some, like, big chips in my dad's collection of things. So, yeah, I understand that. <laughs> yes. So, you know, like I then my parents are both artists. So like I had like these creative people and all mm-hmm. this technical stuff around me. And then this idea I should be an engineer. And I was like, OK, sounds like a good idea because I hadn't really thought about it and got to college and got into engineering that way. So wow, thought I was going to be a mechanical engineer. Mm. Cars are cool. I wanted to make them. <laughs> Okay, so where did you grow up? I grew up in New Jersey, um, in Patterson, actually. So, oh, what's uh, in Patterson? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So part of the reason I was homeschooled is because, um, you know, the movie Lean on Me, mm-hmm. that was actually my school district. Oh. So, <laughs> was the movie very much like it, the school or the school like the movie? Rather? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And my dad was a teacher, so he was like, nah, we're not doing this. <laughs> so so for the young people, can you explain to them what that movie is about? Oh, gosh. Uh, so Lean on Me is basically about uh, Eastside High School in Patterson. And all of the kind of crazy things that were going on in this school is, you know, predominantly black city and area at the time. And, you know, they had this principal, Joe Clark, who, you know, he was a little like crazy, but he was over, he was very protective of his students in the school. And he would do anything it took to, like, keep kids safe, keep, like, drug dealers out of the school, like, all of the bad influences that were, you know, kind of representative of, like, you know, the city at that time. Mm -hmm. He was very vigilant about keeping it out of the school, but he was also, like, a little, you know, a little crazy, um, aggressive, (laughs) uh, you know, and, like, but the movie kind of shows the story of how he and, like, a lot of the teachers, um, you know, kind of, like, basically would do whatever it took to make sure that those students who wanted to be educated regardless of like the circumstances they were around um that they could they had that opportunity wow i can't believe that's like (laughs) where you grew up yeah (laughs) wow okay so you said your parents were artists you had this random teacher he was like you like this stuff you should pursue it but then you chose to go to a small college, mm-hmm. a historically black college. 
and do physics. Yeah. What was that like? Well, why physics? Yeah. Uh, honestly, it was like my last choice. (laughs) 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 So, you know, I knew chemistry wasn't going to be the move and I don't like biology because that's just not my jam. I got that. Yeah. I'm not really good at memorizing things. So I just don't like blood and that part too. (laughs) No. Yeah. No blood memorizing. That's like not my jam. So, um, I was going to be a math major, and that also faded quickly because I was like, I don't really like doing this math stuff for nothing. (laughs) And um, then I took my first physics class. I was like, well, I didn't take physics in high school. Let me see. It's either this or I'll have to really rethink what I'm going to do. And I really was able to learn my math through physics because I Hmm. needed those problems and the context and the examples to really, like, cement into my brain why – you know, you needed a derivative for this or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Physics did not make me like math more or understand it more. It just made me so confused. <laughs> yeah. I also really like physics, though, because if you don't know how to solve the problem, if you, like, change the control variables, then you can solve the problem with what you know. So if you don't know the answer, change the, change the question. <laughs> <laughs> Valid point. That sounds like some political stuff. If you don't want to answer, just change the question. I'm going to say you asked me something completely different, and I'm going to answer that question. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but it works. But it works. It works at the end. So um, physics, you did that at Spelman. So you eventually, you know, excelled in physics, and then you decided grad school. Was that something you always wanted to do, or was it did you have to be coerced into grad school? <laughs> How did that work? Both. <laughs> um <laughs> You know, at Spelman, like, we were really exposed to opportunities in graduate school. I knew I didn't want to go to med school because, again, that blood and guts thing is just not for me. (laughs) Um, And I thought I was going to be, like, an engineer and get an MBA because that's what I knew people were doing. Um, Mm. But around the time I was finishing, you know, we had, like, this huge economic downturn. So these awesome engineering jobs that everybody thought we were going to get just did not exist. Mm. So um, I I didn't really have a good plan, so I applied uh, to Norfolk State because I had a friend who went there, and she was like, <laughs> oh, just apply. They'll take you. And I was like, great. Do I need a GRE? She was like, uh, I don't know. Because <laughs> I didn't do that. I, I had no plan. So <laughs> That's hilarious. And, you know, I ended up there um, soon after, and I was, I was just excited because um, I was not, like, a, a, an A student in undergrad, like, I was like a solid B. (laughs) So, you know, I was really excited to be in graduate school and, you know, wanted to make the most of that opportunity. Um, Basically, I didn't really have a plan for graduate school because I didn't plan well. (laughs) And um, I wasn't an A student, but like I I knew I knew what graduate school involved and entailed. And um, I was able to apply to Norfolk State, and it was like a late application in the springtime. Wow. Um, yeah. On a holiday. <laughs> basically, basically. And, you know, because I didn't have, like, you know, I was a pretty much like a B student. Like, I was, you know, I tried really hard, but, like, I was not, like, a, you know, I think one semester I had, like, a 3-8, and I was, like, you know, the happiest person on the planet. <laughs> and it was just, like, one that one semester. <laughs> um, but... I, um, you know, applied to Norfolk State and they were like, yeah, absolutely. We want you to come in August. Like, and this is like May. Wow. <laughs> so I was really, um, you know, humbled because I didn't feel like I kind of, you know, 
deserved honestly to be in graduate school is just like okay let me try this and I'm gonna put everything into it and I was you know super focused and you know committed I was you know gonna do everything it took when it came to classwork and research and everything like that and um that's how I started my graduate school journey so you went from physics to optical engineering so was that a natural progression what's optical engineering so optical engineering lasers is and stuff. yeah lasers semiconductors oh. but like really physics and electrical engineering and material science meeting together mm. so you know not just like mm. you know your your blu-ray dvd player but like your fiber <laughs> optics mm-hmm. you know for you know your super fast internet at home that's really expensive um <laughs> you know all kinds of different applications so um and it was a pretty small department and a new department as well. So. Really? Mm-hmm. So it's not very common then to find an optical engineering program? No. Mm-hmm. And I used that premise to kind of frame my dissertation work too because it was weird. <laughs> no one knows what an optical engineer is. That's <laughs> They're like, true. do you make eyes? <laughs> no. I engineer all these. I knew it wasn't that. <laughs> <laughs> People at, would always ask, though, like, so what is that? Like, what do you do? Do you make eyes? <laughs> oh, Not <sorry>. quite. <laughs> yes. Do you make eyes? Do you make eyes? <laughs> okay. Mm. Yeah. So wow. how was that experience? Did you, like... Your master's program? I did. I um, so I I liked my master's program because like it gave me a chance to kind of like firm that I actually knew what I was doing. I was actually an engineer, like mm. you know, because I was kind of like when I graduated undergrad, I was a little uncertain. I thought I was like not really you know a solid engineer because I kind of you know it's a physics major. I had engineering classwork and engineering internships, but like you know I didn't have like a cohesive kind of thing that was what I did but um I also when I was in undergrad I started doing research in physics education and when I got to Norfolk State my advisor um had actually worked on the engineer of 2020 um which basically is like kind of one of those seminal reports that changed the way we think about engineering education mm-hmm. at the wow. undergraduate level and because my department was new we were doing our abet accreditation mm. so my assistantship I could either build a laser or work on ABET accreditation. And I was like, I don't want to put my eye out, so let me do this accreditation thing. So the opposite of right. making eyes. Yes. The opposite. <laughs> Engineering opticals. Yes. Oh my goodness. That's funny. So people probably don't know what ABET is unless they are in academia. An academic. Yeah. What is that? How do you explain that to So ABET is basically Your the grandma. <laughs> yeah. ABET <laughs> is the organization that says that your engineering program is a good one and that when you graduate, you will actually be able to work as a engineer in the field and meet kind of the um, professional and ethical requirements of the discipline. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So she got to ensure all of that for this new department and also work with someone who was shaping this year's yeah. <laughs> right it's now. 2020 now right right. So how do we do? <laughs> right how do we do isn't that mind-boggling i don't want to think about it it's okay. a little stressful okay. actually because that means we're old let's move on <laughs> or i'm old, Y'all old. <laughs> i'm the youngest one in here Look, so well actually technically i'm not <laughs> technically <laughs> 
technically. <laughs> okay. So is is that what led you into engineering education then? Yeah. Um, I really like the idea of like researching how people learn, what they're learning, and and who the people are that are engineers. Like we're kind of weird people. Um, and Speak for yourself. <laughs> we're weird in that we do different things than a lot of different people okay. do. And we create the physical world around us. And That's true. And also, yeah, like, you know. Weird. Yeah. And then, like, as black women in engineering disciplines, you know, how do we get to create space so that more of us get to be here? Because we're pretty privileged to, you know, sit in our seats as, you know three black ladies with PhDs in STEM, which is cool. That's true. And, you know, like Kyla's a first. I'm a first. I feel like Jeremy's a first, too. I'm a second. But still, listen. Right. The fact that you can count on one hand. Right. Oh, you can count. Right. With two fingers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's weird. You know, and it's not like we're, you know, we're not that old that, you right. know, we're still pretty, you know, we graduated grad school in this decade so valid valid okay so why is engineering education important then so i would say engineering education is important because of a few things like um i'm an identity researcher so like i'm really interested in how people get to be an engineer and what are the things and experiences and organizations and institutions that inform who gets to be an engineer Mm -hmm. Um, and then it's also important to understand, um, what we're teaching engineers because it's a difficult discipline. And, you know, we hear all the time about how people drop out of engineering because it's hard and maybe they don't have math skills or whatever kind of skills gap it Mm -hmm. might be. Um, but we can also improve what we teach people so that they can be highly effective. I'm curious though, like about like identity, like what are some of the things you found out about like who gets to be an engineer? Because we have a lot of messaging in the media about who or what an engineer looks like. But what did your research find? Yeah, so I did my dissertation dissertation research around um, identity trajectories, and I was mm-hmm. looking at people in optical engineering because it's a weird field. <laughs> Very specific. <laughs> Very field. specific. Yeah, there's not a lot of programs in the nation that you can actually study. So, you know, study in a department that says optical science and engineering and your degree says optical science and engineering. Mm. A lot of people are physicists or electrical mm-hmm. engineers or material science, whatever. Mm-hmm. But like there's a very small subset. And I was like, well, how do you pick these niche fields? Because optical engineering does change our world mm-hmm. dramatically, even yeah. if we don't touch it directly. Um, and who gets to create that technology and how do they get to the place where they are creating that technology? So what I found in my research is like there's three different um, components that really matter. The intellectual experiences that we have that make up who we are, um, both professionally, academically and personally. Mm -hmm. Um, The institutions that we're affiliated with and the roles that we have in those institutions and then the networks that we're a part of. And one of the things that I found in my research, especially like for folks, I was studying graduate students, but. I was really, you know, keenly interested. How did you get to a PhD program in optical science and engineering? And it was almost always about network Mm -hmm. that people had a faculty member that said, hey, I want you to come work in my lab. Or, you know, they were exposed to like, you know, the posters in the hallway that we walk past a lot of times. Like, oh, there's a research experience at this university Okay, I don't have anything else to do this summer. I'm going to (laughs) apply, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it's 
kind of haphazard and we could do a lot of things to um, ensure that more people get those opportunities. It shouldn't be like one professor saying, I like you, so I want you to come work in my lab. Right. Mm. It can make it more like intentional. Exactly. That's pretty cool. How you got into like social capital research? Heck yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a natural trajectory because if you're seeing like networks and the things you're a part of are a huge part of what pushes you into different parts of engineering, then yeah, things like a natural next step. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I did a little bit of work like around social capital, like, you know, how do people who are typically marginalized in this discipline find social capital so that they can have access to these opportunities where they're academic, professional, personal, whatever they are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did a little bit there, but then I really started like asking harder questions around social justice, because one of the things that like I'm really personally concerned about is like, you know, One, it's not just about individual people being able to get a great job in engineering or tech and, you know, make a lot of money and do cool things. That's great. But that's (laughs) not the only important thing. Mm -hmm. But like, how do we use technology and STEM to include people in society? Um, Mm. You know, what are some of the what are the things around technical literacy that you need to be a functional citizen? So those are bigger questions than just who gets to be an engineer. Yes, they are. But like, you know. Yeah. Like how we live in the world is actually really mediated by technology. That's really, that's cool. I never even thought about that. I have. <laughs> <laughs> but what do you do? You yeah. Know? Like that's really, they're, they're like these nebulous things. Mm-hmm. They're big problems that one person isn't going to solve. Right. So. True. But we can all like pick apart a piece of it. You mm-hmm. know, it's a big system. And like as much as like, you want to dismantle and burn it all down and start over. We can't do that. (laughs) So what can we do? Wouldn't that be great though? Why can't we? (laughs) It would be ideal. But like, you know, even in these chances to like build new learning experiences, how can we like not make the mistakes of the past, Mm. you know, as we're creating new learning experiences. And that kind of is another reason why engineering education is so cool to me. So you started off at Spelman, HBCU, went to Norfolk State, another great HBCU. Then you transitioned to Blacksburg, Virginia. And even though it's called Blacksburg, it is not blackity black black like your two <laughs> no. other previous places. So what was that transition like? Uh, it was definitely interesting. Um, I, you know, when I when I showed up, there was one other black student in the department. Um, Whoa. Yeah. And there are a couple of black faculty around the College of Engineering, but um, it's, you know, like many PWIs, like probably under 5% black student population overall. And, you know, um, but I would say that there were like two, two key takeaways from my HBCU experiences. Well, maybe three. Maybe two. I don't know. That uh, <laughs> we'll decide when they come out, right? Um, but there are a couple of takeaways from my HBCU experiences that were really helpful in navigating Virginia Tech. Um, one is I had a lot of confidence. Um, you know, I really, I, I never really believed that I was like, you know, spectacular or special, but I could work really hard and mm-hmm. make stuff happen. And I also felt like I had a fair assessment that, you know, there aren't too many like super spectacular people around. So like everybody else I was around was just as 
talented, capable as I was. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I was confident that I could, you know, if I worked hard at it, I could do it. Um, and I'd proven that to myself both at Spelman and Norfolk State um, before I got there. And then second, I think that I um, really developed a language around blackness in an academic sense and a technical sense. Um, and I mean, like, and not just like in a technical sense of what it means to be black, but like technically in um, what it means to be a black person in a technology space in from my experiences at Spelman and Norfolk State. So I came in with like the language to understand what was happening around me and the environment that I was in mm -hmm. um, because it can be challenging at times and it can be really stressful and you can feel like, oh my God, I'm losing my mind because, you know, I'm experiencing this. But like I had language around mm. womanism. I had language around imposter syndrome. I had language around microaggressions and, you know, and black sociology and psychology. So it helped me to navigate that experience at Virginia Tech where in a lot of times it felt very isolating. Like, you know, mm. you got to drive three hours to go get your hair done, mm. you know? Um, nope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and like though, and kind of um, what that experience meant for me, I, I had a really strong sense of what, what it meant for me to be there for myself and then for other people because of those experiences. So I highly recommend that, even if people don't get the chance to go to HBCUs, that you take the time to really understand black culture and black psychology and sociology perspectives because it will help you understand what's happening around you or happening to you in a pragmatic way so that you, you basically don't lose it. Yeah, I wish that was a course for all. You know, there's no way to mandate it. But like, every person of color, come to this, how to thrive in this you know, non-person of color space because, mm -hmm. you know, that is invaluable having that kind of training. I'll say this. Like, I know Lauren's PhD experience was awful. Oh. Traumatic. Traumatic, oh. bad, all the things, all the all the negative words. Um, And I relied on her so much during my experience because it was also similar in nature Aww. and <laughs> i mean it was it was it was tough i mean there would be days that i would call her crying like, literally about to cry oh yeah gosh. because it was you don't know how to reconcile what's occurring yeah you just like it's, these it's people crazy. Like, this can't be happening this can't right. be happening to me <laughs> like this mm -hmm. happened to you it's not supposed to happen to me too right? right like we're supposed to fix these things and it doesn't matter like we're kind of still in this place where it's like even even when you are armed with full knowledge of what the experience is going to be like, it still may, it still may be rough. And yeah. having people who come before you and like show you that you can finish no matter what, like, I am like really crying now. Oh my <laughs> I was like, you make me cry. I want to hug you, but I can't hug you. <laughs> <laughs> we keep going. But um, yeah, like it, it's challenging, but you you have people who who paved that that path for you to be able to make it. And Lauren is one of those people for me. So Aww. yeah, that's we've known each other forever. Basically, <laughs> oh my God. go back to Nesby yeah, days. Yeah, so like <laughs> I'm wearing a PCI shirt from a uh, so this is a National Society of Black Engineers pre collegiate initiative shirt um, from. 
a chapter in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Why do you randomly have that shirt? Because they gifted it to me. Oh, that was nice. When I was the PCI chair for Region 3, and Lauren was one of the advisors, and that's how we got really close, is that... First of all, I looked up to her when I was like a baby. So when I was a PCI <laughs> chapter student, she was Region Three chair, and oh, that's cool. yeah. So you see this like awesome yeah. oh black woman like <laughs> trajectory. Yeah, yeah. Of, like you're just, like Lawrence says, I can do it. Yeah, Lawrence says I can do. I can do and it. She's doing it, and she <laughs> she really is. And so I just I had to tell that little story because it's really important. And I didn't have an HBCU experience. Like I didn't surround myself with community in that way but i had community externally through nesby and through the support like people like you gave me so okay. shout out to having that, yes. <laughs> that like support. Admit, like, i'm like <laughs> really like crying over here and we don't have any napkins like, i know, I know. I'm like come on starbucks here. napkins use my jacket <laughs> okay but yeah i mean i think like that but that community aspect is so critical like Kyle and I were walking over and she was talking about how like when she was writing her dissertation you know like the folks that you were writing with at different schools different schools across the nation like one at Virginia Tech like her I'm in Michigan another's in Chicago and we're just all you know as I told you like on Skype holding each other accountable yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I had a yeah. couple of friends. We were in different departments at Virginia Tech, but it was like we would like kidnap each other. Like, get your laptop, <laughs> get your Red Bull. We are going to the Graduate Life Center, and we will be there. And Until it was the like, sun comes up. Yep. yep. It was like we were finished this dissertation crew, and it, like I wouldn't have graduated without them. Yeah. And oh, there was a group in uh, college. It was the political scientists. They called. They had a group. They were they called We All We Got. <laughs> It was like political science and like psychology. And they had this such a bond, like, because we all we got. And I loved it. I was like, y'all are hilarious and true. (laughs) All right, Lauren, you good? We good? Yes. All right. I'm done crying. Yes. I'm a crybaby. You want to hear a funny story? Sure. So Jeremy has on her Nesby shirt today. I also have on a Nesby oh shirt. Oh my god, the story is so funny. So I'm, I'm going to back up for the people who are uh, who can see us on YouTube. Um, I'm in Region Two when I was in college, so it says, "Can I get a two hype?" Because that was our little chant. And the side says, "You know, New UMBC NSBE." But Jeremy was like, "Oh, do you have a?" Nesby shirt and I was like I think I do and I searched the house I was like oh yeah I think I gave it away she's like what I was like well I have this one that I made and I had to give away the other one because this was like the phase where everybody was doing like the fancy Chinese lettering kind of thing so it was like Nesby NSBE across the shirt and then under it was like each individual like Chinese character for like NSBE so I'm like cool I have something that's on trend let me wear it to class so I get to my music theory class and the Chinese students in the class were like what 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 is this <laughs> and they clown me so hard because I was like it says Nesby and they're like that shirt says happy family fun food <laughs> but that is Nesby happy family fun food <laughs> The irony of that. <laughs> and they were saying, like, phonetically, though, it sounded like nisb. Like, that's how oh. you would, like, oh. say it if you were to, like, say them together. But I was like, it's a national system. They're like, mm mm. Happy family fun food. <laughs> so then I didn't want to wear it Could anymore. That be the title of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> 
love it. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I gave it away because I got self-conscious about the shirt, and I didn't want to just be out here loud and wrong. <laughs> now we crying for other reasons. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. <sighs> so, after Tech, after Virginia Tech, you landed. Did you land at Amazon immediately after there? Uh, no. So, I, I spent a few years in higher ed. Um, I knew I didn't want to be a professor. Shout out to all the people on Tay Track. <laughs> My life after grad school, I was like, uh uh-uh, uh, I cannot, like, I can't take any more intellectual hazing. I was bamboozled. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I was like, no, nah, I can't do this. Um, but I was working in professional staff roles at universities. So um, at one place, I built a program uh, to help get more underrepresented students into STEM PhD programs and MD, MD PhD programs. So it was modeled after Meyerhoff Scholars Program from whoop, UMBC. M thirteens, a yeah. <laughs> so um, I was there for a while, and um, then I went to University of Washington and was working on a grant around. Um, reflection in engineering education. So how do you help students reflect? Um, how do you help faculty teach reflection and doing that in an engineering space? Hmm. And that was great. Grant was ending. I was on my way to a Beyonce concert. <laughs> I saw this job on LinkedIn and I was like, oh, that looks like stuff I could do. I don't know what machine learning is, but I can apply for it. Right. And then they hired me. <laughs> See, Beyonce out here saving right. life. She gave you all the confidence and said, you know what? I am Sasha Fierce and we just going to go ahead and apply for this. Dr. Sasha Fierce. Dr. Sasha Fierce. <laughs> and then they that. hired me, which is kind of crazy. Um, And there I was able to build a program to help uh, employees learn about machine learning while they were at work. So I basically built a university inside of Amazon, which is cool and crazy. That is really cool. I told y'all you would find out why she's here. (laughs) (laughs) She's had to keep listening. Exactly. That's so... What? Like how? Why? why? How did all this happen? So I had, you know, because I knew I didn't want to be a professor, um, but I needed to have a job. And I still, (laughs) you know, unfortunately, I needed to work. And um, I wanted to still use my degree in engineering education. So I worked on these large scale STEM education programs. Mm -hmm. So when I was finishing up my time at Virginia Tech, I was working on um, an Army education grant um, for STEM education, which like the DOD invests like millions and millions of dollars in STEM education. Hmm. And I was like, oh, this is cool. That is cool. So built programs like basically K through gray. I need to write that down (laughs) K through gray, right. (laughs) No, you really do. So, you know, I learned a lot about large scale STEM education there. Then I was building a program that was you know, again, kind of like this scale longitudinal thing around getting more underrepresented students into PhDs in STEM. Mm-hmm. And then I worked on a grant with 12 universities. So like STEM education and scale were like a part of my career story. And then like doing these program um, management and development roles was really like the jobs that I've had. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. So did you have to do anything to like get up to speed in machine learning or did you work with like content experts for that? Uh, Both. I read a lot. Um, So like that's where that technical background comes into play because and, you know, even that academic background, because I wasn't afraid to pick up journal articles and 
you know, read my way through about neural networks and reinforcement learning and natural language understanding. Oh my gosh. If that's the first thing that you pick up about computing, <laughs> God help you. Like that was one of the hardest. That's what she did. I know. That's what I'm saying. Like that was one of the hardest, like just AI in general was one of the hardest classes for me to wrap my mind around. Once I got it, it worked, but like. It's I just ter- could not understand. It's terrifying, honestly. <laughs> yeah. It's terrifying. Because it's like, it's just math on steroids. And you're like, well, why would right. you do that? Why would you even, who made this up? Why do you even that's know? That's the that real this- question. <laughs> who made, whose brain did that come from? <laughs> and that's my problem with statistics. Like, that's girl, that, let's I'm not like, even talk about it. That's just <laughs> not for me. <laughs> no. But no, the fact that you could like literally pick up papers and say, all right, I, ooh, child. <laughs> could you start with something easy? The fact that you could, ooh, no, hats no. off. That's why I was like, how, Hats what? off. Why? <laughs> More like why. <laughs> Life choices. Okay, so we've got Amazon Machine Learning University up and running. Mm-hmm. How many people are going through this? I don't know. Company? The, I don't know the current numbers, yeah. but like I saw an article float by on my timeline the other day. But I mean, it's. Really, and like there's content that's available to the world to look yeah. at for free, oh, which is cool. great. So, like, you know, you're like, I did that. Yeah, you're like, that's me. <laughs> it's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, getting to like teach people about this really cool new space in technology, like, you know, helping colleagues basically advance their career. Cause like once you get out into the workforce, you have to keep learning to stay relevant and to, you know, kind of move your career. So that was cool. And then, um, you know, I still got to do this academic thing because basically I would work with people to get them to develop and teach classes because mm-hmm. I didn't really – I don't have the skills to develop a class on neural networks, but I could have a good conversation right. about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, you know, but I would help people who were experts in the space create learning experiences. So, like, you know, they were – Almost all of them were like PhDs. They also chose not to do this tenure track thing, <laughs> but they love teaching. So it was a cool way for them to teach and, and make a lot of money doing it. Yeah. Yeah. That That's part. A, are they hiring? Girl, don't <laughs> even blink that way. Okay. Yeah. Lower, yeah. <laughs> don't even blink that way. No, direction. I can't even live in Seattle. I'm not built for it. <laughs> but you also, outside of doing this university that you created, were also still teaching. At a university, because you were like pretend faculty. Yeah, yeah. So you get to do the part you like, and yeah. then none of the other stuff. Yeah, basically. <laughs> like you know, I feel like one of the things that I've really tried to do in the last few years of my career, really, is like have it all in a really manageable way. So you know, I, as much as like you know, I might at some point really come back to academia full time, but right now, I don't want to. Um, <laughs> is there a need to though? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know. But I think like there's a huge way opportunity to have impact mm-hmm. by, you know, especially in an AI space where AI is all about democratization. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to go get a formal degree. It, you know, there are very few places in the world that you can get a degree that says machine learning. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, you might have one or two AI classes in graduate school, but that might be about it. Or like a concentration where you took like a three class sequence or something. Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. do your research on it. But mm-hmm. like, you know, and the pace of the field is so fast that, you know, by the time you finish the PhD, it would be obsolete anyway. <laughs> I thought I read something about like MIT starting or having some sort of yeah, a AI. That was recent. 
college or Ish. department or yeah i, I forget what it was yeah department. it's a department yeah. but i think it was going to be like an actual phd but program. then it was also like all these different it was linked into all these different programs too. yeah so it wasn't just like computer science it was like across campus multidisciplinary mm-hmm. yeah i whatever they're MIT. But, they still, do but the fact want. that we can name one. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. a trend in her life, right? Yeah. Like that, you know, from optical engineering yeah. to making your own university. <laughs> um, so then you also got into human-centered design and engineering. Yeah, that's kind of more of an accident. <laughs> <laughs> I just be falling into cool stuff. Uh, well, when I was at UW, was it Beyonce again? No, uh-huh. okay. not quite. Uh, not quite, <laughs> but close maybe. I don't know. Uh, but when I was at UW, our department, well, I was, the center I was in was affiliated with Human Center Design and Engineering. Um, so I, you know, had the opportunity to work with two amazing pioneers in engineering education. They'd be mad if I called them pioneers, um, but Cindy <laughs> okay. Atman and Jennifer Turns, and they were a part of that department. And you know, Cindy especially has been like a huge mentor for me professionally. And she was like, "Well, let's keep doing this academic stuff." So that was kind of how I got the appointment in the department, and it gave me opportunity to also kind of bring a lot of my really funky background together (laughs) Mm -hmm. into you know technology for people yeah and education together into a thing (laughs) next i never thought about that like the fact that you're designing these learning experiences and like that's human-centered design these humans you know need to have things designed so they can learn engineering i was like oh never thought about it that way yeah we had a conversation earlier where Lauren said that universities will still need to exist in the future. Yeah. And I was very much like, "Mm, I'm not sure. But you had a great argument that, like, industry designs for profit. They want money. They want results. That's all they care about, really and truly. Mm -hmm. But universities are about people. Yeah. And so, like, that whole aspect of, like, human-centered design, computing, all of that. It exists in industry, but the people who actually care about that work are out in In universities. universities. Yeah, like driving that work. Driving it forward and holding industry accountable. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, some of the, you know, some of the most impactful, I think, developments, especially in an AI space, are coming out of universities, Mm. you know, out of research centers, you know, that very traditional perspective. Like, you know, you can use AI to do a whole lot of things mm-hmm. to make work easier to, you know, increase your profits over time and all that other stuff. But, you know, like breast cancer detection is, you know, being enabled at, you know, at university research, yeah. you know, like those are the folks that are helping to kind of and also like kind of just closing some of those gaps. Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, a few months ago, there was an article out about how you know, there is now some AI algorithms that can detect breast cancer equally in black women as white women, mm. which is huge yeah. because they're thinking about all of the interdisciplinary features. So it's about, you know, cancer research. It's about using AI, but it's also about addressing um, health disparities mm-hmm. and the sociological impacts and mm-hmm. differences, all of that. And like you always will need universities to have that 
huge interdisciplinary perspective. Yeah. I also think too, like with a university, you like it is it's not profitable for industry to have one person sit and think about a problem for a year because yeah. they need to affect the bottom line. But you can have a PhD student do that and they can very deeply think about a problem and get these results. So yeah, I, I, I think I agree that the university is needed, especially because I don't want a doctor who has not been mind. to school. <laughs> Listen, I don't want no doctor that ain't been to med school. That part. Been to online school. Right. They keep that. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So now you're at IBM being a rock star there as the AI education and curriculum lead. So how was it Beyonce again? How did you get here? Uh, I feel like I can credit most of my uh, successes in the last several years to Beyonce. Cause, Love you it. Know, <laughs> I mean, hey. But um, I got information and I uh, went over to IBM. And really, this has been like an awesome opportunity to build learning experiences um, that are focused on skills. So it's not so much about like, hey, learn how to use this thing. It really is about education um, and focusing on the, again, interdisciplinary aspects of, of a business. So um, I've been developing learning experiences for executives because, you know, the people that make the decisions and invest in teams and stuff like that, they need to develop an understanding of um, AI and machine learning that is functional for the business, but also mm -hmm. helps them to bring together all the parts that are going to change their business. Because a lot of companies that are out there right now, they've been doing things a certain way, you know, with typical programming that doesn't necessarily fit um, the AI and data science dynamic. So really helping people move their organizations through change around culture and data and um, and also understanding both in a literacy sense and a strategic sense about the opportunities that AI can create. And then um, really working on identifying ways to uh, create those learning experiences. So whether it's a line worker, so someone who, you know, answers the phone at the call center or, you know, all the way up to that executive leader, making sure that people have that understanding and literacy because AI is not really going to kill us all. It's not going to take <laughs> away everybody's job. <laughs> I mean, I guess. Right. This is not iRobot or all the movies. It's still scary. Well, and I think like that's the thing is you can make it not scary by yeah. educating people and then also helping them really understand, you know, the importance, like, especially the importance of data. And like, this is where, you know, I get my own little kind of bend back into that social justice piece is like helping people understand the limitations based on the data and understanding how, you know, issues like bias can come in because mm -hmm. of the data sources that you choose. You can't, you know. That's why it's scary to me. Honestly, yeah. it's not that, like, I think the robots are going to kill us all. I think it's more so that... Someone's going to program them people, to kill us right, all. Right. <laughs> people are in control of this technology that has the capacity to affect change wide scale. And people are trash. <laughs> well, and we... But if they know how to not be trash, they cannot be trash. And that's right. really kind of the goal, is, like, help people to learn both on the technical side, but also on, like, the human-centered design yeah. aspects, yeah. the ethical aspects, yeah. you know, and having the right kind of infrastructure and guardrails around things, you yeah. know? Um, because, yeah, you could have a rogue person that goes out and does something, but, like, the opportunity for scale is pretty limited. Mm -hmm. um, Depending on where they work and what their understanding is of the system. Yeah. 
it still would be hard even for like one person but we yeah. can like yeah and there's i do a lot of reading in this space because i teach a class on computers and modern society i have mm-hmm. a big unit on ai and um, I was reading something about how they're trying to make like a standard sort of check or test where you basically run an algorithm through it and it exposes all the biases exactly. in the algorithm. Like, hey, you didn't you don't consider these sorts of inputs or why do you have the weight over here on this yeah. sort of thing? So it basically helps you make decisions based on weighted factors and there are people picking these weights. Yeah, there are people. Arbitrary, so yeah. Uh, well, sometimes they're arbitrary. Sometimes, you know, why 0.3? Why not 0.33? You know, there's <laughs> things that are, you know, up to interpretation, but I'm optimistic for that in the future. Like software where, like you said, you could have a rogue person, but you still need to run it through this check or it's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's just like, there's, it takes so much to like, you know, the things that we see like in videos and stuff like that of like these AI robotic solutions, like it takes so much to create yeah. those like 40 second video clips that it's like, there's so many control factors in there that you cannot generalize that to the human world and you still no. need humans mm-hmm. in the loop. And like, yeah. and that's the really important thing. And you thing. need multiple people because no one person knows all of the details of how certain systems work. Yeah, they need like explainable AI exactly. as well. Mm. And lots of perspectives in creating and selecting solutions as well. I think it's interesting how your background in engineering education just kind of became married with this new and very innovative space of machine learning and AI. And without the engineering education aspect and that knowledge, there would be no way for you to be doing what you're doing now in in tech. Yeah. That's true. I've been fortunate. It's like intentional serendipity or something. (laughs) But like, I've been really blessed just to have these opportunities to like, you know, do things that matter to me mm-hmm. and also, you know, have impact and focus on the cool technical stuff, but also really bring people to the center of that, you know, technology. So I'm like flipping the, the script here. So like back in the engineering education PhD throws, it was rough. It was difficult. You were isolated. Now you're at IBM. And even though I know you work remotely, you were gushing <laughs> about like your team and how supportive they are. They're awesome. And that's got to be great. a welcome change, right? To have that kind of support, that kind of environment to work on such a complex problem. With it, people. Yeah, it's I mean, one of the things I wish I had realized sooner, um, because I think being like really goal driven, I was always like going after the opportunity mm-hmm. and, you know, that can come with good things, it usually does, but sometimes it doesn't come with great things all the time. Yeah. And like now I'm really focused on, and I would always like give like my new advice tip for people is, you know, go somewhere that values not just what you do, but who you are. Mm-hmm. Because who you are informs how you do what you're doing. And like that's one of the things like for me that it comes through in everything I do and I don't try to limit it anymore mm-hmm. where it's like, you know, this is who I am and I'm bringing my whole self to my work and my lived experiences and all the stuff that I read. Like I read all the time and you know, the, my, you know, my perspective around social justice, around inclusion, around, you know, using technology for people like that really is what makes what I do. I think 
that's why I love what I do is that I get to bring my whole self to what to my work and it's not just okay I'm building stuff and it's great and whatever yeah but yeah. I get to you know and I'm valued for my perspectives that's so yeah. great I love that like I love the fact that you're showing one of the things you can do with a stem PhD that does not involve academia because yeah. some people don't even know that this is even an option. I, Girl, I didn't really, know. <laughs> I was literally just in a Facebook argument with somebody. Hey, Crystal, about how you don't have to. Hey, how you don't have to go into academia and all this stuff. And like, there's so many jobs that you could have. And like you said, this opportunity came as you were just casually going to a Beyonce concert. You know, for Amazon, but it's, there's things where your doors are open to things that don't even halfway exist right now. But so, it's so cool. It is amazing. Like, I'm, I don't know, like, I might leave y'all, because <laughs> she's out here making real people I'm money. Saying, making real impact. Like, people who work here, I mean, who are listening to the podcast, rather, if they work at Amazon or if they get a job at IBM, you might be looking at some of the content that she's created for you. Or if so you're just you. part of the general public, because it's, right. it's available to you. Exactly. Like, if you think about how we've moved to, like, these massive online courses that people can take. I mean, it. the world is changing really quickly. Yeah. And I think brick-and-mortar institutions of higher education certainly have their value. <laughs> but, like, when you can do something that affects change well beyond the confines of your institution, well beyond your local community, that's almost, like, immeasurable. Like, yeah. you have no idea the kind of impact that you're making. Lauren was making impact anyways. But like <laughs> now it's like even though your name's not it's not like Lauren's machine learning university. Um it's it is you, you know? Like yeah. it's it's your baby. Like your dissertation was your baby. Like you can be like, I taught all of them. All right. the people, all the innovation oh, that comes y'all out. Y'all want some evaluations? Go look at the reviews <laughs> Thank you. Thank you and yeah. Okay. So, is there anything that you feel like people should know about you that we haven't covered that that you feel like you know what? Let me just sprinkle this in. I think it's really um, important to remember. Like, I love this Audrey Lord quote, um, and like I remind myself of this all the time because I think it's important, like, to bring your whole self to what you do and and to be in a place that values that. And to be um, and to not be afraid of of that. But um, she has this quote. It's from um, one of her books. And she said, if I didn't define myself for myself, I would be crunched into other people's fantasies for me and eaten alive. Mm. And it's like that sounds like real, you know, rough because like who wants to get crunched into someone else's idea of who you are and what you can be and what you can do. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, especially for for us as black women in STEM and technical spaces, like it doesn't matter what people think about who you are, what you, what they think you should do. It just, I mean, I would say black women in general, like it doesn't matter what people think, but mm -hmm. if you define who you are and what you want to do and what your, you know, and understand what your purpose is in the world. Like mm -hmm. I know that my purpose is to change STEM education and, and there's like, you know, specific areas that I want to do that and I've and some that I've already been able to accomplish but I I have to you know consistently remind myself that like if I keep if I'm honest with myself and focus on my purpose and and continue to define myself for myself 
then basically anything is possible. Mm, I love it. Drop the mic. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That sounded bad dramatic. <laughs> so, Lauren, for everybody out here who wants to keep up with you, where can they find you on the interwebs? Sure. So you can find me on Twitter, Lauren D. Thomas one on Twitter. And uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. Help me out. Put a message in the request so I like know what you want to talk about. <laughs> That's like a big, a weird pet peeve, but a pet peeve. <laughs> Tell me what you want to talk about. Right. <laughs> Stuff. Stalkers. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. Yes. Thank you so thank much for you. coming. Literally the diagonal of the country to be right. here. You need a nap. Yes. I, I feel great, and it's just like so great to be here. I love you too. I love the show. We love it's you amazing. too. Thank you, Lauren. Um, my future baby cupcake loves you too. I love baby cupcakes. <laughs> baby cupcake. I love it. She calls me cupcake. Mm-hmm. I know. And Rod is Mr. Cupcake. <laughs> so we're about to have a little mini cupcake. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. She's okay. a little crumblet now. She's working. She's Man. working. Yeah. Oh, she's one of those little mini cupcakes. She's, she's in the oven. Yeah. Baking. Yeah. <laughs> so she's some batter now. Yeah, she's, she's, yeah, not, she's still she's, she's not, still not like... even fully formed. <laughs> I can't. Okay. Yay. As always, you can find us on our website at modernfigurespodcast.com where you can also purchase items from our online store. Send us questions via email at askus at modernfigurespodcast.com. The podcast is also on social media. Just search for Modern Figures Podcast. And you can find Kyla and I on Twitter. Kyla is at Dr. Underscore Kyla. And I'm at Jeremy Waysa. Until Until next time, time, stay hydrated, moisturized, and and protect protect your peace. peace.